Let's begin with prayer. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has uh, been exalted to your right hand, that he reigns over all things, that he's seated on his throne. And we thank you that you've invited us into his presence, into your presence through him, and that we can come into your throne room in the heavenly sanctuary, and that we can present our offerings. We thank you that you hear us, that we can speak to you, and that you've spoken to us. And we pray as we continue to uh, think about your word and think about our worship that you would guide and lead us by your spirit, that we would uh, understand what you revealed to us, that we would apply it, we'd be faithful, and that uh, you would be exalted in all that we do uh, here and uh, in the coming days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had been talking about creation in a couple of senses as being a, an establishment of liturgical space. Uh, the creation as a whole is a temple, and that means that in some sense everything we're doing within this temple of the, uh, this, uh, this uh, cosmic temple is a form of liturgy. Life is liturg has liturgical force to it. Life has liturgical force because everything we do is done to the honor and glory of God. It's an act of worship. Uh, life has, is liturgical because it follows uh, habitual ritualized kinds of patterns. Uh, that's, you know, you, uh, you go through the, the same Set of uh, same same set of actions when you wake up in the morning, virtually every morning, um, always involves some some form of caffeine, no doubt, uh, and uh, some for, for hopefully some form of ablution. Hopefully, you've washed up before you came in here, uh, and your uh, change of clothing. You're you're feeding yourself. There's a there's an investiture involved. Uh, there's a uh, a kind of a feast that begins your day, and you go through the same kinds of actions. So in that sense, life as a whole has a, has a kind of liturgical ritual form to it, and I think that does reflect the kind of habitual ritualized acts uh, of God that he, uh, we'll talk about this more in the, a little bit later this afternoon, but God creates through a series of repeated actions uh, through the creation week. Um, and... Um, uh, life is liturgical also. We, we carry out a liturgy in the cosmic temple also in the sense that Paul talks about it in Romans 12. So, I was forced over the course of the lunch hour to clarify what I meant by um, life as a liturgy and the world as liturgical space. So I figure if one person needed clarification, I'll try to clarify for everyone. But I, I, it's striking how much uh, of the language of sacrifice and liturgy that is found in the Old Testament is applied uh, by the New Testament to the li life within the, within the church and not, not specifically or exclusively to, the to our acts of worship. Uh, Romans 12 begins, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And he's picking up, uh, using Greek words that are used in the Old Testament to describe the liturgies of the temple. Obviously, he's talking about sacrifice. Uh, and then as you look through the chapter, that's the heading of the chapter. And then as you look through the chapter, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to live a life of holy sacrifice, living sacrifice? What kind of spiritual service of worship are do we need to perform? Part of it has to do with uh, uh, the gifts that we receive and using those gifts 
for the edification of the body. That's part of the liturgy of the church's life. Um, love without hypocrisy, that's part of the liturgy of the church's life. Abhor what is evil, cling to the good, what is good. Be devoted to one another, so on and so forth. As you go through chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, that's all about the new pattern of sacrifice that we live out. And part of that, obviously, is that we uh, offer sacrifices of praise and we do intentional acts of worship. But the whole life of the church is part of this living sacrifice uh, that we offer to the Lord. Uh, and we carry that out within the church, within the creation, in our vocations. So in, those sen in that sense, too, the Christian life is a life of um, worship and a kind of liturgy that we're carrying out in the cosmic liturgy of, of the world. Uh, we also talked about the Garden of Eden as a, as a, as a, uh, as a uh, liturgical space within the cosmic liturgical space. Uh, it's the first sanctuary. It's the pattern for all the later sanctuaries of the Bible. And it fulfills the functions of the later sanctuaries, being both a place of communion with God and worship, and also a, an anticipation of the future form of creation. Uh, all, all of the world is eventually going to be a glorified garden. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 show us. Uh, and so what Adam is admitted to at the beginning is the first form of what will eventually encompass the entire cosmos. So it provides a model, not only a place of communion with God, but also a model of uh, the creation brought to its fulfillment and creation brightly ordered. Uh, and I was arguing that uh, our liturgical space, uh, uh, that is buildings that we use and spaces that we use for worship, have the same uh, multiple function. Those are places where we commune with God around his table, in his word, uh, in prayer and praise. It, they're places that, are, that ought to anticipate that future glorification of creation. It is in fact, every time we build a building for a service of liturgy, we are in fact using materials of creation and devoting them to uh, the service of God. We're making, we're making part, part of the world into that, uh, that event, that uh, future um, New Jerusalem, that future Garden City. Uh, of course, um, things don't stay in place. Adam is placed in the garden. He has, a, he has an original place where he communes with God, uh, an, original, an, an original liturgical space, uh, but he uh, seizes what he was not uh, what he uh, what he shouldn't seize the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the curse is displacement, and that's the curse as you move through the early chapters of Genesis, um, more and more extreme displacement from God. Uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, but remain uh, in the land. Cain is forced to wander outside the land, uh, wander uh, uh, going further east, away from Eden, further away from the garden. Uh, the sons of God who sin in Genesis 6, uh, the sons of God who intermarry with the daughters of men and fill the world with violence and corruption uh, are wiped out of the world. They're displaced from the entire world and the world is started over again. Uh, you can see this in the way that the early, uh, the early history of the human city, Cain builds the first city, but Cain builds the first city on the blood of his brother Abel. Uh, the early cities of the Bible are all cities that are set up in rebellion against God. Uh, not just the city of Cain, but the city of Babel, obviously. Uh, not a place, uh, the, not, not a place designed for service and worship and honoring God, but a place in, uh, set up in defiance of God. 
Uh, Sodom is another major city in the book of Genesis. Uh, again, a, uh, a, an organized human space, a cultural space that is devoted to perversion. Um, Egypt is another kind of uh, city, a corrupted city. Uh, so we have displacement, exclusion from the presence of God, but then when human beings do set up places, they're often corrupted and perverse. Uh, and Israel is supposed to be a, a, a counter to that. Israel is supposed to have different kinds of places, uh, but it often doesn't. Uh, you, know, you can find uh, lots, of, lots of prophetic passages that, that highlight this, but uh, perhaps well, one of the most severe ones many severe places, uh, passages in the prophets, but one of the severe ones is Isaiah 1, which condemns the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem as being like the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. You've just made your the Lord's city, which is supposed to be his dwelling place, the city where his house is, you've just turned that in just, just another perverse city of man. Um, but in the midst of all that, in the midst of this displacement, uh, displacement from the place where God is present, and then displacement also in the sense of corrupted places uh, that, uh, that uh, are devoted to idols, that are devoted to uh, evil. Uh, in, the, in response to all of that, God gives places. Uh, the gift of places where he's promised to be present is one of God's primary responses to the displacement caused by human sin and by God's judgment on human sin. Uh, and so God designates places where his name is going to dwell, particularly after the Exodus, and particularly when Israel enters into the land. Deuteronomy 12 is, uh, a place, is the passage that talks about God choosing a place to set his name, and he will be there. He promises to be there, and he's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a place within all the distorted places, within all the displacement of fallen humanity. God has set up a place where people can meet him, where he's promised to be, where they can recover Eden in some small measure, and they can come into his presence, and as Deuteronomy 12 says, uh, they can come into his presence and eat, drink, and rejoice before him. Um, that's a, uh, a, a resolution or a, a partial resolution, a partial uh, redemption of space and of human life from the effects of sin. Uh, and uh, the sanctuaries of Israel are all of that sort. They're all uh, recoveries of Eden. They're all recoveries of space as it's supposed to be used, a place where God is uh, worshipped and honored and where people can gather together, not just to eat, drink, and rejoice in God's presence, but eat, drink, and rejoice with one another. Um, in the Old Testament, we talked about this a little bit in the discussion, but in the Old Testament, these sacred spaces, the spaces that God designates, are off-limits to um, most people. That is, uh, most Israelites and most Gentiles, surely, can't go into the tabernacle or the temple. They can't go inside. They can come into the courtyard. They can draw the, near that far, but they can't go any further. Um, that's a sign that there's, uh, there's, these sanctuaries are uh, set up still under the curse of Eden, that there's still displacement, uh, humanity is still excluded from the full presence of God and the full enjoyment of that presence. And yet, uh, the fact that God has designated a place where his name is going to dwell and invites people to come in and provides 
ways for them to approach. That's what all of the rituals of Leviticus about are about. If you're going to approach me, this is how you do it. But all of those uh, detailed laws of sacrifice, all of those detailed laws of purity have to do with uh, the background of that. All of that is an invitation. It's all about God's hospitality. Uh, I've set up a, uh, a, a new Eden, a recovery of Eden, uh, in this one place. And uh, you can draw near to me if you do these certain things. You can come this near. It's dangerous for you to come nearer. If you come nearer, then you're going to be roasted. And uh, like, if you come near in the wrong way, you're going to be roasted, like Nadab and Abihu, once, uh, as soon as the tabernacle is set up. It's a bad thing for a tabernacle. You set up a tabernacle, and immediately you have a couple of corpses inside the tabernacle. That is not what you want after the dedication of a tabernacle. Um, that kind of you know, ruins the whole thing. Um, if you come in the wrong way, uh, the Lord strikes out in anger. You need to come in the right way, but that's, the, again, the background of that. The, the whole message of Leviticus is come near. Eat, drink, and rejoice in my presence. That's the whole message of the tabernacle, the whole message of the temple. God has set up these places. There are restricted, uh, and yet they are um, places of welcome. Limited welcome at this point, but still welcome. Uh, and they're rightly ordered places. These are uh, places in the world where creation has been devoted to its proper purpose. All the materials that we looked at in, uh, that I read about in Matins, the gold and the silver and the wood, the fabrics, the, you know, the, the uh, dugong skin that uh, covers over the tabernacle, uh, the ram skin dyed red. Those are created things, created materials that are now being devoted to forming God's house on a very small scale. But this is what creation is for. It's all designed to be raw material so that the initial created temple can be glorified into the finished eschatological temp, uh, city temple, and all of, the, uh, all of the materials of creation are, being, are, are to be brought there. That's what's happening in the tabernacle and later in the temple and in other places that Israel sets up. The actual physical stuff of this world is being devoted to uh, a, uh, its liturgical use. Uh, it's rightly ordered space. It's, it's rightly ordered space in terms of uh, the relationship between God and his people. Uh, this is the way God designed the world to be as uh, a world where he could commune with us as his creatures. And now in these specific places, that's what's happening. Uh, this is, what, this is a, a, again, a foretaste of what the whole creation is eventually going to look like. Um, one, of the, one of the puzzles as you go through the, uh, through the Old Testament uh, is, uh, or one of the, what was it, puzzles? Uh, yeah, I'll, say, I'll stick with puzzles. I don't know what else to call it at this point. Um, one of the problems, one of the problems of the Old Testament is you have these, you have these designated spaces, but they keep getting destroyed. You, know, you set up a tabernacle, you put it at Shiloh. Once you get into the land, it's at Shiloh for a couple hundred years. And then eventually the Lord lets the Philistines come in, and the Philistines come in and they demolish the tabernacle. They take the ark for a while. Uh, and then the Lord doesn't put that back together. There's another hundred years or so when the tabernacle's not functioning. The ark's in one place, the tabernacle's in another place. Uh, and eventually they're recombined in the temple. But the temple isn't permanent either. God has set up a place, but um, it's not a permanent place. The Babylonians come because uh, 
Uh, Israel has turned the house of prayer, which is for all nations, into a den of thieves, uh, just as that happens to Herod's temple too, as Jesus says. But it happens to the first temple. It happens to uh, Solomon's temple. It becomes a den of thieves, and so it has, it's demolished. The Lord lets the Babylonians come in and destroy it. Um, second temple is built and uh, then eventually destroyed uh, in, its, in its more elaborate form after Herod uh, rebuilds it. So uh, where is the place where we can meet with God? Where, what's the permanent place? If these the places keep a step being established and then disappearing. <laughs> I mean, what do you do with those, in those uh, hundred years between the destruction of the, of the uh, tabernacle and the beginning of the temple? How, how do you, where is the place where you can, uh, where you can find uh, where there's a rightly ordered space? And I think that uh, fundamentally what we find both in the Old and into the New Testament, fundamentally, God himself is the place where we find refuge and where uh, we, life is rightly ordered. Um, where God is present in glory, that's what consecrates the tabernacle and the temple as holy spaces because God is there. And the house disappears and God still promises to be with his people and they gather in his name, in his presence, and God is the refuge throughout all their generations, uh, even when they don't have a physical place. Uh, and that's, a, that's an important point to make in response to some of the questions that came up uh, during, the, uh, during the course of the discussion, because there are certainly times in the history of Israel, and there are certainly times in the history of the church, when people do not have designated uh, buildings where they can meet. That doesn't mean they have no place to meet. Uh, the Lord himself is the... Uh, the place, and as they gather in uh, two or three in his name, uh, he is there in the midst of them, and they are there in the midst of him. Um, this, uh, in a sense, comes to its uh, climax in the New Covenant. That's already true in the Old Covenant. It comes to its climax in the New Covenant in a couple of senses. Uh, in one sense, uh, 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 God himself is the dwelling place throughout all generations, Psalm 90 says. Uh, that's true uh, Temple or no, the Lord is the dwelling place. But in the New Covenant, uh, Jesus has come. The Son has come in the flesh. He's joined himself to our flesh. He's poured out his spirit on us. And so we are brought into the communion of Father, Son, and Spirit in a far deeper, more profound way than uh, ancient Israelites could have done. Uh, we are in the Son. Uh, we enter into the presence of God by the Spirit. And so our worship uh, takes place in that communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's true that in one sense we're worshiping the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, as, an, as, as, a, as a different, as something outside of us. But I think it's just as profoundly true, perhaps we should, we should meditate more on this, that we are gathered in the Lord's presence. We are in Him because we're in Christ. And if Jesus is there in our midst and we are, in, uh, we are with him, then we are within that uh, uh, triune fellowship. Um, I'm going to uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on this in, in the uh, second part of this afternoon's talk. But uh, that's, that's, um, when we, uh, the, the dialogue that takes place in worship is an incorporation, our incorporation, into the triune conversation. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit in a, an eternal communion of love. We're brought into that. Uh, I think that's part of the, part of the meaning of the, 
uh, opening declaration of many Christian liturgies. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're going to start our Vespers liturgy this evening. Uh, that is an invitation. Draw near in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think it's also a destination. Uh, that's where we're heading. We're coming into the kingdom. We're entering into the kingdom. We're entering into the true sanctuary, which is our uh, triune God, and we're incorporated into that. And that's, uh, that means that uh, the people of God have... Uh, a, uh, uh, have a kind of liturgical space, God himself, the triune communion himself, uh, regardless of whether we have a building or not. The fundamental space is always there. If you're in a, if you're in a concentration camp, um, you can gather in the Lord's name and the Lord is in your midst and you are in uh, uh, the proper liturgical space. Uh, if you're in the catacombs, as the early church was sometimes. If you're in China, where uh, I don't know if they still do this. I remember seeing a movie years ago where the Chinese Christians would gather together and in, they wouldn't sing out loud because they didn't want to be discovered by the, by the authorities. But they would uh, mouth, silently mouth uh, hymns. And they would just have to meet wherever they could because if they had a public, uh, a public meeting in a public building, then you were gonna, they were going to attract attention of the uh, Chinese authorities. Uh, they're, they have uh, entered into the liturgical space that is the triune God. So uh, I think that uh, that's, that's something that is true throughout the Old Testament, and I think it explains how the uh, different, uh, how you have, the, have any kind of continuity in Israel's worship through all these uh, rebuildings and destructions of the sanctuary, and uh, even more in the new when we're incorporated into the uh, into the. Uh, body of Christ, and we are the body of Christ. Um, at, the same, at the same time, uh, that you could, you could uh, follow the logic of that and say, well, then we don't need any buildings. We don't need to think about liturgical space anymore because we're in the triune God. Uh, but we still exist in the body. We're still in historical time. Uh, and uh, in the Old Testament, people dwelt in the presence and uh, dwelt in Yahweh, and yet Yahweh told them to build these spaces. The spaces themselves sent the message that their, their most foundational place of worship was the Lord himself. Because this, all of the sanctuaries were, were built after the, after the uh, pattern of the glory of God. Um, uh, Meredith Klein in an in a older book called Images of the Spirit develops this point. Uh, that the glory of God which appears on Sinai, the glory of God which inhabits the most holy place, is the pattern uh, that is uh, put in architectural form in the tabernacle and later in the temple in a different form in the garments of the high priest. As we said earlier, the garments of the high priest are for glory and for beauty. So he's clothed with glory and he's like a human version of the glory of God. So even though the glory of God is there, and if you're worshiping in the presence of the glory, then you're worshiping in holy space. When, when, when uh, the glory shows up on, uh, on the, in the burning bush, um, Moses is in holy space. He has to take off his shoes because the place he's standing is holy ground. Uh, Yahweh is holy space, creates holy space, and yet uh, his, uh, his uh, eternal glory is represented and replicated and becomes the pattern for these uh, sacred spaces, these holy spaces, these liturgical spaces that we 
uh, build in the new covenant. Much of what I want to say in the last few minutes of this portion is a thing that we talked about in the discussion period, but just to uh, um, um, give, a, give a quick summary of what I was intending to say. Uh, liturgical space in the New Covenant is, is dramatically different, radically different from liturgical space in the Old. Even in the Old Covenant, as I've said, uh, the spaces of worship were places of hospitality. The Lord opened up his house, his royal house, to his people. Um, but even more so in the New Covenant, there are no barriers. Uh, no one is excluded from the, the, uh, uh, the, the presence of God. We're, we don't have to stay on the outside. Uh, and any liturgical space that's designed to, ex- to separate the people from some other uh, group, I think is a, an, a, a violation of the, the, uh, the basic uh, organization of the New Covenant. I'm thinking of... Uh, on a large scale, things like an, an Orthodox church that uh, the first thing you see when you enter an Orthodox church is an iconostasis, an icon screen that's in front of the church, a little door there <clears throat> that the priest moves in and out of during the course of the worship. He goes back behind the icon screen, does some things back there, he comes out and announces things, and he's constantly moving back and forth. And they have, they have theological and liturgical reasons for doing that that they give. But I think the entire setup is uh, a, uh, a, a, a moves in the opposite direction of the New Covenant, which is to open liturgical space. There's nothing hidden. Uh, everything that God has to give us is in the open, and we're all, uh, we all should receive it. Another, an, another kind of uh, uh, a different sort of violation of this would be the practices of the medieval Western church, where uh, frequently, most frequently, the... Uh, the uh, uh, Eucharist was, or the Mass was performed without the participation of the, uh, uh, of the people. Um, most Masses were performed without people even being present. Okay. Because you had um, monks who were hired to perform Masses, you know, their whole day would be a series of masses. They would be paid, paid by a patron to perform masses, uh, and for you know maybe for some to uh, to address some problem in purgatory. They're trying. They're doing these masses. There's nobody there except the priest, and he's continuously uh, doing these masses. I, I think it's without question the majority of medieval masses were done uh, without anybody present, and even when people were present, of course they didn't necessarily receive anything. And if they did receive something, at least after about the 12th or 13th century, they were receiving only the host and not the wine, uh, the communion in one kind. It's something that the, the reformers constantly attack, constantly. It's one of the main things that Luther, that, uh, that drives Luther mad, that uh, the people of God are being treated as outsiders. Uh, we're all priests, he says, by virtue of baptism. And so we all have, um, we all have a, a, a right by virtue of baptism to, the, to both the bread and the wine. So, and he sees this as part of the recovery of the gospel, and it is, because the gospel is about the removal of those barriers and our ability to enter directly into the presence of God. Uh, so that's one point about the design of, uh, of liturgical space. Another point that we made in, in various ways is the... Uh, 
use of biblical motifs, uh, biblical adornments, uh, garden motifs in in uh, sacred in, in our in our sanctuaries in our churches. That's been uh, a, uh, a part of uh, liturgical architecture through most of the most of the Christian church. Anticipations of the New Jerusalem again uh, part of the uh, part of the design of many churches throughout the history. Uh, the, the major point is that uh, uh, the, the building that we worship in is not indifferent. Uh, it matters what we choose to worship in. Uh, sometimes, again, cost, opportunity, stage of the church's development, all kinds of things may mean we worship in suboptimal conditions. That happens. Uh, and there are times to devote uh, resources and energy to other things than building a grand church building. And yet, the church building is not an indifferent thing. Uh, if it's right that the materials of the world are supposed to be, diverted, uh, supposed to be de- devoted to the worship of God, is, if that's the whole point of creation, is that all things are going to be joined together in a final uh, sanctuary, if all, th- if all living creatures are going to be de- joined together in a, f- a final eternal act of praise, uh, then... Uh, anticipating that in the way we design our church buildings is an important uh, part of our mission. Liturgical space is not just a, it's not just a practical concern, but it's part of the mission of the church. It expresses the mission of the church as, uh, as uh, ex- exhibits our calling to, uh, to build God's city within the world. Okay. All right. Uh, I would stop for questions, but I'm uh, I'm behind, so I'm not going to stop for questions. We can take I'll take questions and comments uh, at the beginning of the discussion period. I'm moving into lecture two now. You'll be happy to hear. And I'm going to talk about the uh, the word and dialogue. Uh, in worship, and I want to kind of start from the same vantage point that I did when I talked about uh, liturgical space. That is to say, I want to talk about the um, uh, creation, creation as um, both a uh, it's a product of God's speech, and it's space in which God speaks and which God responds to our speech. Uh, it's one of one of the important fundamental aspects of our faith. One of our fundamental confessions is that we worship a God who is not silent. We worship a God who is not only not silent, but a God who is eternally, necessarily word. Word is a name of one of the persons of God. John 1, who's been eternally with God the Father, eternally toward God the Father, eternally God. Uh, it's, uh, a speech is not an accident of God, but um, part of his fundamental nature. And uh, this God who eternally speaks, who is word, speaks a world into being. And uh, things exist only by virtue of God speaking them. 
uh, God speaks and there is a heavens and an earth. He speaks and there's light. He speaks and there's a firmament. He speaks and the waters divide and dry land appears. He summons plants from the earth. He commands the waters and the waters team with fish and great sea monsters. Uh, the only thing, the only reason anything exists is because of the word of God. Uh, there is no fundamental, more fundamental reason for the existence of anything uh, than the, that God has spoken it into existence. Uh, and you could say that we exist, that's, what, that's true not only of our origins, God spoke the world into existence and the, the first plants came up. Um, everything since then is sustained in existence by the continuous speaking of the word and the continuous breath of the Spirit. That's the only, thing why, the only reason why anything continues to work or to live is because God keeps speaking it. Okay. If he fell silent, there would be nothing, but he can't fall silent, right? Because he's word. <laughs> and we, it's true to say that we exist in order to respond to God I'm going to do, I want to develop that in just a second. We, we exist in order to respond to God, and particularly human beings exist in order to respond to God verbally. We can converse with God. But it's really more radical than that. We need to think about our creation more radically. It's not that just that we exist in order to respond, but we exist as response to God. So it's not like God spoke uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, there was light already out there, and when God spoke to the light, the light began to shine. The existence of light is itself a response to the speaking of God. Uh, the, the existence of plants coming up from the ground uh, is a, uh, they exist as responses to God's word. Uh, and that's what everything is, it's what we are. We exist as response to God's word, and we exist in order to respond to God's word. We exist as dialogue partners with the speaking God. We're created to enter into a conversation with the God who speaks, uh, with the God who is eternal conversation. God speaks to Adam. You can run through the early chapters of the Bible. God speaks the world into existence, and then he specifically addresses human beings Obviously, in ways that those human beings can understand, he speaks to Adam in some kind of human form, human language, and Adam can respond to him. Uh, Genesis 3, the first words we get from Adam to God, not very encouraging, but he does respond. Uh, the Lord speaks to Cain, the Lord speaks to Noah, the Lord speaks to Abraham. Uh, all of these are dialogue partners, uh, and that's what we are called to do. And we... Uh, each of us is uh, summoned uh, to respond to God's word. And everything in our lives is determined by how we respond. Uh, whether we live well or live poorly, whether we eternally are eternally in communion with God or eternally suffering in hell, all has to do with the way we respond to God's word. Whether we respond to God's word of promise with faith or with disbelief and doubt, whether we respond to God's word of command with obedience or disobedience, whether we respond to God's summons to joy with joy or 
with uh, refusal, whether we respond to his invitation to enter into his feast. Everything about us uh, is a, a response to God's word, a disobedient, unbelieving response or a response of obedient faith. Uh, and nations, not just individuals, but nations, families, churches, uh, uh, exist in the same kind of dialogic relationship with the speaking God. Nations rise and fall because of the way they respond to God's word. Uh, they are blessed if they respond in obedient faith. Uh, they're cursed over the long run, at least. It may exist for a long time by God's forbearance, but they, they're cursed over the long run and uh, destroyed if they turn from him and re refuse to hear his word and refuse to listen. Um, everything in uh, all of our, our families are, exist as they do and our fortunes as families depend on our response to God's word our fortune as churches um, listen to what the spirit speaks to the churches uh, Jesus says through John to the churches of Asia uh, and if you don't hear then I will come and I will remove your lampstand out of your church and you'll go dark what good is a dark church? No good. A church without a lampstand, without a lamp on the lampstand, is, uh, is not doing what a church should be. It's no longer functioning as a church. And that happens if churches refuse to listen to the Word of God, the, the Spirit speaking to the church uh, through, the, uh, through the Scriptures. Um, so individuals, groups, all of history is part of this dialogue. Uh, all of history is, begins with God speaking to Adam, Adam's disobedience, God's curse. Uh, God's call to Abraham, Abraham's obedience, God's blessing of Abraham. Uh, God's call to uh, Israel, God's commands to Israel, Israel's ambig ambiguous, ambivalent kind of response. Uh, the, the word of the gospel going out in the new covenant, people responding, nations responding and coming under the discipline of Jesus Christ. All of human history is part of this dialogue uh, that is uh, initiated in creation and continues out through the whole history of the world. Uh, God isn't just the initiator of things. He doesn't just speak the first word, but he speaks the last word. So when, when, uh, all of human history is suspended between God's initiating word let there be lights, and the final judgment, God's final word. All of human history is between those two words, and everything that takes, uh, goes on between is that same, has the same kind of pattern to it. God speaks to us, we respond, God evaluates. Uh, right from the creation, I think we see that uh, in, the, in Genesis 1, although God's evaluation isn't, isn't described as speech, but it still is a... Uh, a, a, pa a passing of a kind of a kind of judgment or evaluation. God speaks, let there be light. There is light. God sees the light that it is good, and declares that uh, declares it to be good. It doesn't use the verb declare, but God is uh, seeing and evaluating it as good. Uh, he speaks the initiating word. Uh, things happen. He speaks the evaluating word. Uh, each day has that kind of, kind of structure. Most, most every day has that kind of structure. There's one day where God doesn't say it's good, but um, 
Most every day of the creation week, God speaks, something happens, something comes to be, and God evaluates it as good. The whole week, God initiates with thou shalt, uh, uh, let there be light. He ends with declaring it very good. Uh, he speaks to Adam, and then he evaluates Adam after Adam is disobeyed. Uh, God is the, God's alpha word and his omega word provide the parameters, the poles within which human life is lived. And I want to suggest that, that has a, that's a kind of liturgical dialogue. And by that, I simply mean that God is speaking, we're responding. There's this, there's this movement back and forth uh, that is replicated in the liturgies of, uh, I think, the liturgies of the Old Covenant in some forms, and certainly in the, hist- in the liturgy of the Christian church, which are di- have, take dialogic forms. Uh, the, so th- that's all to say, uh, reinfor- reinforce a point I was making before, that the liturgy is not some kind of deviation from everyday reality. It's not some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, sacred icing on a secular cake. Uh, the liturgy, insofar as the dialogue of word and response, is disclosing the structure of reality, of history, of human life. What we're doing in the worship service is a small concentrated form of what we're doing all the time. Um, and what we're doing in the liturgy, a well-constructed liturgy with people who are doing it with faith, what we're doing in the liturgy is dialogue done in its right way. Not as an anti-liturgy where God speaks and we disobey and disbelieve and he judges us, but a, uh, a, a, a rightly ordered dialogue where God speaks, we respond. God says, um, uh, X, Y, Z from the scriptures, and we say, thanks be to God. Uh, God calls us into his house to worship in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He dismisses us with a final word of benediction. Okay. Uh, that's the way the dialogue of history, the dialogue of human life, is supposed to take place, and that is actually happening in the liturgy. So again, my thesis from the, from the morning, you might remember the morning session, do you remember the morning session? I, I do, sort of. Uh, way back, way back in the morning. Um, my thesis, now, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. My thesis from the morning session is that the uh, creation and human life is being redeemed and restored and put together in its proper way by the action of the Son and the Spirit in the liturgy. So the dialogue, of li- a dialogue, is, dialogue with God is what life is about. That's put back in, at least for the hour and a half of the worship service, it's put back in its normal form. It's not, again, it's not a, a, a violation or an, something that's alien to human life, but it's human life as it's designed to be lived. Um, so what do I mean uh, when I say that uh, biblical liturgies are, I did say this, I think, biblical liturgies are all, all have this dialogical structure. If I didn't say that, I meant to, and I'm saying it now. So even if I didn't say it before, it's been said. So how does that how does that work? Um, you can think of um, some some clear examples. Uh, so let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that I've convinced you that the Garden of Eden is a liturgical place. It's the place where God meets with Adam. And so what happens there is a uh, is to be a, a communion with God a communion with God in word and a communion with God in 
uh, in food. Well, the first time we see that happen is in Genesis 3. Adam has, uh, 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 the Lord has placed Adam in the garden. He's created Eve. He's given Adam a command, the initiating word. And how is Adam going to respond? Well, Adam responds with disobedience, and then God comes in the spirit of the day, walking in the garden. And uh, we have this, uh, Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the, in the spirit of the day. That's ruach. The Hebrew word is for spirit or wind. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then we have a dialogue. Is this, does this sound like your liturgy? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou didst give to me, be with me, she gave to me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, who is, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any cattle. And then another curse and a couple other curses. Uh, this is kind of just an upside down liturgy. It's just, it's like the, the, the negative, uh, the photo negative. Do we do photo negatives? I don't think we do anymore. Remember photo negatives. This is a photo negative of a liturgy. God is present. He summons people to appear before him. And Adam doesn't want to come out. Adam's hiding. Okay? It's an anti-liturgy. It's the opposite of what's supposed to happen. When the Lord comes near, even he comes near with uh, the sound of the, uh, the, the spirit of the day, which is probably not soothing sound, but probably the, the sound of the spirit, like a rushing mighty wind, like on Pentecost. The Lord comes, even then, you're supposed to come out and greet the Lord. Uh, Adam doesn't. Um, where are you is the Lord's first word, and Adam gives this excuse for why he's hiding. Um, there's a, a, the dialogue continues. The Lord questions him. Now, this is an opportunity maybe for something resembling confession. You know, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat? Adam is straightforward, yes, would be accurate. Uh, but no, he doesn't, he doesn't, it, he sort of admits it. He does admit it at the end of the sentence. Yeah, I ate. But consider the circumstances. The woman that you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So there's not an open confession, which is certainly what the Lord was calling for. Have you eaten from the tree? Yes, forgive me would be good, but no. The woman is accused. This is, this is the opposite of what happens in, uh, in a liturgy. Self-accusation is what we're supposed to do when we're in the Lord's presence. It's the first thing we do in the Lord's presence. We confess our sins. We accuse ourselves of, um, uh, not, of doing what we ought not to have done and not doing what we ought to have done. Uh, but Adam is, uh, instead of self-accusing, he's accusing the woman. He's become literally satanic. Satan means accuser or, or uh, slanderer. And he's 
instead of self-accusing and confessing his sin, he's directing that accusation against the woman and then implicitly against God who has given him the woman. Uh, and then, you know, the, the whole thing ends with a nice benediction. Uh, no. It ends with a malediction. Cursed are you and cursed are you. And you're going to uh, be, your pain will be multiplied in childbearing. Um, this is a kind of, this is a dialogue in the sanctuary, in the, in the garden. But this is a, uh, a dialogue that, where everything is wrong. Uh, he's hiding instead of appearing before the presence of God. He accuses rather than confesses. Uh, he uh, hasn't obeyed the word of God in event, so he's cursed rather than blessed. Um, but uh, so it's it's the photo negative, but it shows something about what is. Think about what would have happened if the Lord had showed up in the garden, and Adam had not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He wouldn't have been hiding. He would have come out to meet his Creator. Uh, God would have spoken to him, not with rebuke or searching questions. Adam would not have accused his wife. He would have used language the way it's supposed to be used. If he had anything to confess, he would have confessed it. But if he's sinless, he doesn't. He would have been blessed. The Lord would have met with him, would have spoken to him, and he would have been dismissed with blessing. Okay? So this is the opposite of what a liturgy should be, but still indicates what a what, the, uh, what, it, what it would be like uh, to appear in the presence of God in the original sanctuary of Eden. Or think about uh, Noah. Noah is the first uh, in the Bible to build an altar, the first to offer what's called an ascension offering, or what's called in most translations a whole burnt offering. The Hebrew is olah, which means something that goes up and ascent. Um, and Noah's entire life is surrounded by um, this, it's, it's embedded within this dialogue. God tells him what he's going to do. God told, tells him to do something. Noah obeys, and so the Lord rescues him. So that, uh, the dialogue is, uh, uh, is words from God, obedience from Noah, blessing from God. Uh, and then after the, uh, after the, uh, flood, we have this explicit act of worship. After the Lord has spoken him to him to go out, this is in Genesis 8, beginning of verse 15, God said, go out from the ark, you and your sons, bring everything with you. He, God has spoken to him. Noah responds by offering a, uh, every, uh, one of every clean animal and every clean bird as an ascension to the Lord. The Lord responds to that not only by smelling the aroma, but also by speaking and by promising, he promises not to curse the ground again, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. He blesses Noah with the same blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve, the blessing of fruitfulness. So that uh, not only is Noah's entire life embedded in this, uh, this mutual communication with the Lord, but this act of worship is within that communication. The Lord speaks to him. He responds with this act of worship, and the Lord responds with a further prayer, or with further promise. Uh, we have this in uh, Abram's life. I won't take time to look at it, but Abram's life, you have this. Um, Abram goes from place to place throughout the land, setting up altars, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, the Lord appears to him and gives him further promises. So you have this, uh, his, his uh, explicit acts of worship are part of, they're embedded in this large 
dialogue. The Lord commands him and he obeys and gives him promises. Uh, and each act of worship is uh, uh, that same pattern on a smaller scale. Where God speaks to him, uh, uh, Abraham sets up an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. And the Lord responds with uh, uh, promises and uh, further blessings. Uh, or you can look at uh, uh, the covenant making, the covenant cutting ceremony of Exodus uh, 19 through 24. We have an, uh, a more elaborate kind of liturgy that's laid out here. Israel's gathered at the foot of Sinai. Uh, they're offering um, peace offerings at the foot of Sinai. The Lord comes to meet with them. The Lord speaks to them at length. You know, first of all, he speaks to them and they don't want to hear anymore because it's really scary to hear God speak directly to them. So then Moses speaks the rest of the law to them. And uh, then when he uh, delivers the law, the people respond to that. So you have this lengthy delivery of Torah to the people and the people's response, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then uh, the, final, the final moment of this covenant cutting is uh, 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 the priests, the elders, Aaron, uh, Nadab, and Abihu go up on the mountain and feast in the presence of God. So you have this, uh, this extended account of um, uh, a covenant-making ceremony, a covenant-making liturgy, uh, and at the center of that is this uh, uh, communication from God, words uh, to which the people respond by swearing allegiance to Yahweh. Okay. Um, so uh, th throughout the, I think throughout the Old Testament, we can find those kinds of patterns going on that uh, the Lord is um, speaks, people respond in speech or by action, and then the Lord. Um, the Lord blesses in response. Um, one of the main uh, Old Testament books that has to do with uh, worship, the book of Leviticus, seems to be an exception to that because there doesn't seem to be much of anything said by human beings. Um, there are a few times when there's a reference to confession as part of a sacrificial uh, response. Uh, uh, Aaron is supposed to confess the sins and uncleannesses of Israel over the head of the scapegoat, for example, in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. Uh, but most of the time, this seems to be rituals that are carried out in silence, as far as we can tell. Well, I think even Leviticus is, a, is uh, showing us a kind of dialogic worship, but in an extended sense. It's not a dialogue in words, but it's a dialogue where God speaks and Israel responds, is, co is commanded to respond with ritual actions, that do communicate to God and respond to him. And as they do that, they receive certain blessings. So God says, if you have uh, uh, wandered astray and committed any of the things uh, contrary to the law that I've given you, uh, and you need to offer a purification offering, you have to go through this, these procedures. And if you do these procedures, then the priest secures atonement for you and your sin will be forgiven. Um, that still has a kind of back and forth dialogic structure. The word comes from God, do this. In these circumstances, this is what you do to come back into my favor. Uh, and then Israel does that. And when they do that, the Lord forgives them. So uh, Leviticus has that broad, in that broad sense, still has a kind of, and still has a dialogical 
structure to it. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, I won't take time to develop this uh, in the interest of time, but you can think about this on your own. Actually, I'm going to develop it a little bit. Uh, the Song of Songs, I think, uh, is a, a portrait of, it's a, it, it's a portrait of what's happening between Yahweh and his people. Um, it is, it is a, it's a love poem, obviously. I'm not denying that. Um, but uh, uh, sexual love exists as, it, it exists as a, an image of God's love for his people, for, for his bride. Um, that's not an allegorization that Paul or somebody else imposed from the outside. That's why God created man, male, and female. So they, by their uh, relations, sexual relations and otherwise, they can uh, mirror and manifest God's love for his church. That's why sex exists. Sex is not just allegorized, but it's inherently allegorical. It's created to be allegory. So in a biblical perspective, I think the Song of Songs uh, is... Uh, any, any love poem is going to have that kind of allegorical dimension to it, that typological uh, side to things. Uh, but within the, within the Song of Songs, you can see a, a number of different hints of a specifically temple setting. Uh, there are descriptions at the end of chapter 1 that I read for Sext. Um, at the end of chapter 1, there are references to the materials of the temple. Uh, the woods that are used in the temple are named at the end of chapter 1. Uh, there's a number of references to lily, uh, the, the the beloved the the uh, um, the bride is like a lily, um, or the bridegroom is grazing among the li lilies. Lily is hard for me to say right at the moment. Um, you get on your uh, your Bible gateway and look up lily and see where else lilies appear in the in the Old Testament, and they mostly appear in uh, uh, various furnishings of the temple. The, the pillars that are outside the temple, the two pillars that are on either side of the, the doorway of the temple, have lily-like capitals at the top of them. Uh, the, um, the bronze sea is described as having some kind of lily uh, uh, formation at, along the brim. Um, lilies are, a, a temple, are associated with the temple, uh, and when they come up in the Song of Songs, I think it's a hint that we're in a kind of temple setting with uh, the Lord and his people enjoying communion with one another. Uh, Israel did not have uh, sexual activities in its, in its sanctuaries, as some ancient peoples did. Uh, but still there's this erotic context for Yahweh and his bride. The, the tabernacle is, among other things, a kind of bridal tent where Israel and the person of the priest can enter into the Lord's presence and commune with the, bride, uh, commune with the bridegroom. Um, so when you think about the Song of Songs like that, and then you can start thinking about what the dialogue that's going on between the two lovers, that's the, that's the whole form of the Song of Songs. And uh, next time you read through the Song of Songs, uh, think about it as a kind of liturgy, among other things, a liturgy of mutual admiration. Uh, which is, uh, you know, and stop to think about what that means uh, for, what, for your worship. Um, you come, into the, you come into the presence of God and uh, uh, God says things like, uh, you know, uh, there, is, there, there is no one, you are, you are more beautiful than a thousand women. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I, I said I wasn't going to elaborate, didn't I? But I am. Okay. 
Song of Songs is quite amazing. What does the Lord say to you when you come in? Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. He's saying that to you. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. He's saying that to you. He's saying that to you collectively as the bride of Christ gathered in his presence. He's saying that to you as a member of that bride. The Lord delights in you. And you, of course, are celebrating his glory. How handsome you are, my beloved. So pleasant. Our couch is luxuriant. Uh, there's a, it's a liturgy of mutual admiration. Um, and that's the way the Lord is regarding you as you enter, enter into his presence. Uh, he regards you as uh, a member of his um, bride without blemish. Without blemish comes up in the Song of Songs too. That, that sacrificial term in Song of Songs 4-7. So um, all of that to uh, highlight the point that uh, worship in Scripture is, this, is structured by this, by the same, it has the same structure that the world has, that human life has, that human history has, which is God speaks, we speak back or respond in some way to communicate back to him. He evaluates us. Uh, that's the way every, every uh, episode of our life works. It's the way human history works. It's what we're doing in the, in the liturgy. But in the liturgy, we're doing it as it was designed to be done with proper responses to what God has spoken to us uh, and uh, a properly ordered dialogue. Uh, in the last few minutes, I want to uh, go through the Vespers liturgy and uh, highlight how this works out in this particular liturgy. So if you want to get out your copy of my liturgy book, I'm not going to let that happen again, and turn to page uh, 23. This will also be a way of introducing you to the Vespers liturgy so we don't have to take time to uh, talk about, uh, hi highlight things uh, this evening when we, when we gather again for worship. The, uh, the liturgy begins with a, excuse me, uh, begins with a, with a hymn. The red informs you that there's an entrance hymn and, a kind of, and, and at least a, a gesture toward a procession. We're entering into the Lord's courts with praise and thanksgiving. We are coming into his presence. Uh, and uh, we are, as the opening dialogue indicates, you'll notice, first of all, that this, you know, the whole thing is kind of as dialogical as the other services have been. Uh, but the opening dialogue is uh, a, uh, a, a acknowledgement, confession that we are uh, at the at the gate of Jerusalem, that we are at the gate of God's house, God's city, uh, and that uh, we seek entry into God's city. Um, we have we ha we have a colic for purity. The colic for purity precedes what we're doing. It's right at the beginning of what we're doing. Because uh, even our uh, confession, even our acts of praise need to be purified. Uh, so we're asking God to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts and to prepare us for uh, this um, communion with him in his presence. Um, the confession and absolution. Uh, we come into the presence of a holy God uh, when... 
Isaiah entered the presence of a holy God. He uh, confessed that he was a man of unclean lips and dwelt among a people of unclean lips. His eyes had seen the king. If you come in the presence of a holy God, your first instinct properly should not be to hide like Adam. It's the wrong thing to do. You might be tempted to hide. If you really know what's going on, you might be tempted to hide. But that's not the right response. The right response is to uh, come into the Lord's presence with confession, as Isaiah did. Because we know we can't stand in his presence unless he cleanses us and forgives us. But the uh, opening uh, words that I will speak, dearly beloved, dearly beloved brethren, if we say that we have no sin and, and so on, is a, an invitation. I'm going to speak it. You won't hear the voice of Jesus. Uh, you will hear my voice. But I'm speaking the words of Jesus to you. And that's what your pastor is doing if, uh, if you're, uh, as you're worshiping every Sunday. If he's speaking to you and inviting you to confess your sins, promising you forgiveness if you confess, he is speaking the Lord's promise to you. It's not, not his own commitment. It's the Lord's commitment. Uh, and then uh, you'll respond with a prayer of confession. Uh, and then there will be an absolution, a declaration of forgiveness. So that's all obviously set up a dialogue back and forth between me representing Jesus Christ and you, the congregation, who are entering into his presence. Uh, the, uh, notice the way that the absolution is, the absolution is the declaration of forgiveness at the bottom of page 23. Arising here, good news, brothers and sisters who have been baptized into you with Jesus Christ and so on. Um, God has forgiven you. The absolution is not an additional prayer. The absolution is not, oughtn't be, I think, uh, a, an expression of hope that you may someday be forgiven if you truly repent. Some absolutions are phrased that kind of open up that possibility. You know, um, those who truly repent and truly believe, well, did I? I don't know. Did I really confess? Maybe I withheld something. Maybe I wasn't sincere. No, the absolution should be the Lord's declaration of forgiveness spoken by the minister. Uh, and it is the Lord's, the Lord's word. This is what's happening to you as you confess your sin. He says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. You just confess them. So the next thing that should be said is you confessed, you're forgiven. Um, and uh, you should believe that, rejoice, believe this and rejoice is the last phrase of that absolution. You should believe that, not because I say it, but because of those are the Lord's words to you. Uh, Paul says, don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ's death and buried with him, walk in newness of life? Don't, don't you know that all that's happened? Therefore, consider yourself to be dead to sin. Conform your conception of yourself, conform your self-image to what God has said about you, that's the absolution is kind of reiteration of what the Lord said to you in your baptism, which is why we have the baptismal reference there in the absolution. The Lord said to you in your baptism, you died to sin, you've been raised with him. Uh, now yeah, that's being reiterated. Uh, you died to sin, you died to the old Adam, you've been raised with him. Uh, believe this, conform your own self-conception to what the Lord has said about you. Now we're ready to go. Okay, we've been standing at the doorway, uh, and now we're ready to uh, enter into his presence, which we do with praise. 
an extended series of praises. Um, we have an opening hallelujah in uh, uh, page 24. We have a series of exchanges on page 25 that include the phrase, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Uh, the Latin phrase is sursum corda. That's a traditional exchange that takes place in the, all the way back to the, the Latin mass that uh, we have in our readings. Uh, then there's, uh, I'll sing to you for a little while, a solo. Hope that I hit some of the notes. Uh, there'll be a sanctus, which is the song of the angels, because we are entering into the Lord's presence, which, which means that we are ascending as the smoke ascended into the presence of God. We, as living sacrifices, are ascending in song into the presence of God. So we get to join with the angels, singing the same holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. That's what uh, the angels are singing around the throne in Isaiah 6. And we're joining in with them. Not, not pretend. This is really happening. We are in the Lord's presence. We're joining with the angels. If we're going, as we're going through this liturgy this evening, we are going to be, heaven and earth are going to be joining right here at this place. And the angels who continuously sing the Sanctus uh, will be happy to have us join in for a little while. Okay. Uh, that's followed by the Kyrie. Again, a sung series of responses. The Kyrie, that, that word means uh, Lord. It's a, it's a, uh, the, the word kyrios, which means Lord in the form where it's used to address. So your responses are going to be, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Uh, many Kyrie's go from Lord have mercy to Christ have mercy to Lord have mercy. That's again a traditional, uh, a traditional uh, uh, kind of phrase that's used in Christian worship. Uh, these are uh, prayers, uh, prayers for the, the world, prayers for peace, prayers for the church. Uh, and at each stage, as we enter into the presence of the Lord, uh, we are dialoguing in this, um, uh, in, this uh, uh, in prayer as we enter into the heavenly places. That will lead into the glory and excelsis. The glory and excelsis is just a Latin translation of that first phrase, glory to be God, glory in the highest. Uh, the glory and excelsis takes up several pages of praise to God, and then we're in the presence of God. <coughs> We've ascended. We're on the mountain. And the whole thing so far has been dialogue back and forth. Uh, God has spoken to us through me. God has spoken to you through me. You've responded. We've sung to each other, and we are joining our voices with the heavenly choirs. Uh, and then we... Uh, uh, enter into the Lord's presence in prayer. Uh, the Lord speaks to us in his word. Uh, I should say verse, uh, verse 33, uh, page 33, what's called the gradual psalm just means the psalm. Okay? Uh, a gradual is a transitional, uh, a transitional piece of music, but uh, just think of it as the psalms that we're going to sing this evening. And then, we'll, uh, then there'll be a scripture read, uh, the Lord is speaking to you as, as uh, Israel gathered at the foot of Sinai. Moses went up on Sinai. He had a word to speak. The Lord will be speaking to you through a gospel reading. Uh, and then we confess our faith in it. We'll be using the, the Athanasian Creed on page 34, both evenings at Vespers. Uh, the Nicene Creed, the sung Nicene Creed is great, but uh, it's a little bit uh, difficult if you haven't sung it before. Not that the Athanasian Creed is easy, but at least we'll be saying it instead of singing it. 
um, Athanasian Creed, um, not composed by Athanasius, uh, comes out probably out of the Western Church at some later date. Nobody knows who wrote it. But, um, we won't have a sermon since we're having some lectures. Uh, and then we offer prayers. Uh, the prayers are obviously part of this dialogue structure with God. We'll be praying to him in response to his word, but they'll also have a dialogue structure within them. At the end of every petition, you'll be saying, I'll end every petition with, Lord, hear our prayer, and you'll answer with, for you are gracious. I should say a couple of, couple of things that, we, uh, uh, that, we, that many churches use that aren't in this liturgy, a couple of little exchanges that I think are worth noting. One is that when the, the word of the Lord is spoken um, and read, uh, people respond with thanks be to God. Uh, I think there are a couple of important things going on there. One is uh, you're going to do that. If you, if you do that at your church, you're doing that no matter what's been read. You know, uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, um, the, the, uh, the curses... Uh, the, the curses of, uh, uh, that are pronounced on the two mountains in Deuteronomy. That is read, and you say, thanks be to God. Whatever God speaks to you, you're being uh, uh, tooled and trained to respond with thanksgiving. Because everything he speaks to you, even if it's hard, is good. It's a gift, because it's, it's God speaking to you. And if he's telling you not to do things that displease him, that's a good thing to know, Right? You want to know what displeases him. Uh, you want to know what kind of danger you're in if you persist in sins. So you want to know, uh, and you want to be stirred out of your complacency. Everything God speaks is good, and the, the liturgy is designed to express our gratitude for what he speaks to us. Um, it also, this also has to do with the, the way that the liturgy is kind of retooling our speech. I mean, we are not... As sinners, we are not inherently grateful people, right? Uh, ingratitude is, in some way, Paul says this, implies this in Romans 1, ingratitude is in some way the fundamental sin, kind of at the base. Uh, uh, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And Paul is probably reflect, reflecting on the fall in Genesis, uh, but he's talking about just the general human condition uh, and at the heart and the foundation of human sin is ingratitude, ingratitude to God. Uh, but in, uh, so our instinct is not to receive the word of God or anything with thanksgiving. It's to um, grumble, wish it were a little better than what, you know, we, you know, a little better than what we received, a little more like what he got. I'd like to more, more like what he got rather than what I got. Okay, there's all kinds of ways that our gratitude gets... Uh, twisted and distorted, the liturgy is uh, not only teaching us to respond with gratitude, but it is an act of gratitude at that point. Okay? It is uh, human speech used in the right way, which is thanks, whatever God says, thanks. Okay? That's one, one point. The, the other thing we, we have used in uh, a couple of the, uh, serv the two other services today, as, I, as we move into prayer, the, the prayer portion of the liturgy, um, the Lord be with you and you respond and with your spirit. That's just a little gesture, but it puts our prayer in the context of mutual communion with one another. The Lord be with you and also with, and with your spirit and also our common communion with God. 
that, that little verbal exchange is a way of acknowledging that our prayers and our responses within the liturgy are part of our participation in the, uh, in the uh, communion of the Father, Son, and Spirit in that eternal conversation of the three persons. So we have a, a, a pastoral prayer, prayer for the church on pages 39 and 40 that leads into a Son Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Nunc Dimittis, uh, after a, uh, a passing uh, or a declaration of peace, the Nunc Dimittis is the Song of Simeon, a traditional song that's used at, at the close of worship services because it talks about the dismissal in peace. And then we'll end with a benediction. Again, this is the Lord's word to you. Uh, the, the Lord invited you into his house. He spoke the first word. The Lord is sending you out with the last word, the word of blessing. Uh, and just one thing about the way we're going to do this uh, this evening and tomorrow evening. You'll notice at the top of page 44 that you are to kneel on one knee and face the minister. That's me. Uh, and uh, uh, the posture, we'll, we'll be kneeling for confession of sin. That's a penitential moment in the service. Uh, and kneeling on two knees, head bowed, is appropriate. For the benediction, you're getting ready to be sent, and the posture should be rather one of being on the starting blocks or maybe uh, receiving, uh, you know, your, think of me as having a, a sword to dub you on the shoulders. You're going out to fight the Lord's battles. So uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 not a penitential kneeling, but that's why it's on one knee. It's kind of as a, uh, as a, uh, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a commissioning. So, and this will be a sung, um, a sung benediction, uh, which will lead right into the, uh, the amen. This is the Lord blessing you. You will respond with amen. And then we'll have a closing hymn as we, as we uh, finish off the Vespers. So all of that, again, is, is dialogic. Um, that's a, that liturgy is uh, uh, an uh, eclectic liturgy drawn from Luther, primarily from Lutheran sources, some Anglican sources. Uh, Jim Jordan uh, arranged some music that he found in Russian liturgies. So we have a, a, a number of different, uh, a number of different traditions represented there, and it's not it's not really designed for congregational use, but to to illustrate the kinds of uh, some of the traditional ways that the church has worshipped. But um, that's one way of expressing this dialogue that I've been talking about, that is uh, so fundamental to the biblical understanding of the world and the biblical understanding of worship. That's one of the one way to get it. Uh, to embody it in a particular liturgy. So let me stop there. Again, I've talked myself past the time I was going to finish. Um, take, let's say, take uh, 10 or 15 minutes, and we'll come back and we'll have a uh, question and answer to start, and then uh, maybe go over some of the readings if we have time to do that.